Hi, how are you doing? It's six in the morning and I'm standing at the door of my cottage, ready to go out and try and meet some of my non-human neighbours. It's a really good time of day for it. The night shift are going to bed, the day shift are waking up and there's not many humans about. It's a bit early even for Scout and she stayed in her basket upstairs. Oh wow, there is the most beautiful salmon pink sky. And the village wood pigeons are waking up. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. For the rest of autumn, I'm going to keep you in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 23 of The Stop and Light of Things. One thing is turning into another. And I love this time of year when the same thing is happening too. April and September, the shoulder months. I love the feeling of change in the air and anticipation. The sky to the east is beautiful. Can't see the sun yet. But it's bright and it's lighting the undersides of the clouds. The clouds are quite high and fluffy. Little dabs as a painter's brush would leave. I hope you can hear the difference in the bird song from dawn, back in April. I can hear a blackbird alarming, but not singing. And there are cockerels and lots of pigeons, but not that great chorus of song. There's a distant robin. They sing more or less year round. Ooh. Cows. I can hear some farm machinery. Farmers are always up early. You know, the fact that everything runs away from us, 
the fact that we walk into a landscape and it empties, I think has left a deep psychic scar, one that we rarely even recognise. It's an experience of rejection, of non-acceptance of us. I think it's why we have pets. And I think it's why experiences like swimming with dolphins can be so powerfully healing. Because for a moment, we can be accepted back into a community from which we've been cast out. Every so often, I have an encounter with wildlife in which I am regarded back something looks back at me and doesn't immediately run. And it's always a heart-stopping moment because it's so rare. Of course, we know that lots of animals are capable of recognising us as individuals and remembering which one of us has helped them or harmed them in the past. I think those moments of encounter can be very powerful indeed. In his diaries for the beginning of September, Gilbert White was also noticing the change in the seasons and the sudden beginning of autumn. Here are his entries for today, September the 7th. September the 7th, 1773, people begin to pick hops. September the 7th, 1775, in the dusk of the evening when the beetles begin to buzz, partridges begin to call. These two circumstances are exactly coincident. September the 7th, 1777, swallows and house martins dip much in ponds vast northern aurora. September the 7th, 1779, no mushrooms for want of more moisture. September the 7th, 1782, many Selborne farmers finished the wheat harvest. The latter housings are in delicate order. The early housed will be damp and cold. The Swifts left Linden in the county of Rutland for the most part about August 23rd. Some continue till August 29th, and one till September 3rd. In all our observations, Mr Barker and I never saw or heard a swift in September, though we have remarked them for more than 40 years. All nature this summer seems to keep pace with the backwardness of the season. September the 7th, 1791. Cut 125 cucumbers. Young martins, several hundreds, congregate on the tower, church and yew tree. Hence, I conclude that most of the second broods are flown. 
Such an assemblage is very beautiful and amusing. Did it not bring with it the association of ideas tending to make us reflect that winter is approaching and that these little birds are consulting how they may avoid it? I'm just being very quiet because there is a herd of deer just at the edge of this woodland. I've just come out of the wood, up a set of wooden steps. Ramblers have put in to make access easier. I look to my right and maybe a um, hundred meters away there are one, two, five, five does standing looking at me with their ears up, ears kind of swiveling. They know I'm here, they know I'm a human. They're just deciding whether or not to run away. I'm standing very still. The sun is up now, it's light. They know I can't get to them faster than they can run away. Just waiting to see what I'm going to do. No, they've gone. <laughs> they've gone as one. They just decided. They turned. Yes. But you know, I've, I've passed them. There's two hares. There's two hares in the field running and stopping and running, chasing each other. Very far away, I can only see them as little dots, but they're moving so fast and, you know, that's what, that's what hares do, rabbits don't. Yes, they're running and chasing, they're not boxing, but there's some chasing going on. How lovely. Deer and hares, you see, this is what happens when you get up early and go out. <laughs> I was saying before that there's something really um, important and intense sometimes about an encounter with a wild animal. It's very hard for us to relate to animals in a way that isn't just about us. It's very hard for us to see them clearly. Helen MacDonald in her new book, Vesper Flights, says... Animals don't exist to teach us things, but that is what they have always done. And most of what they teach us is what we think we know about ourselves. And I love how deceptively simple that statement is. There's a lot of work being done by the, the word think. Most of what they teach us is what we think we know about ourselves. We see animals as a mirror of ourselves a lot. But then we do that with other people as well. It's very hard for us to encounter other people as they really are. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber wrote a famous essay called Ich und Du, which translates um, as I and Thou. And it's a bit clumsy because we don't use the word thou quite the same way. 
but he talked about how all of our experience of the world can be divided into I-it and I-thou relationships. And I-it relationships are how we relate to the world of the senses and experience. And we tend to see other things as separate from us, um, as objects, and we might experience them for their utility. Whereas I-thou relationships, which are very fleeting and very rare, they're more I-thou moments. They can't be pursued for their own sake, they just happen. But when we truly um, almost merge with someone or something for a moment and see each other for who we really are, And he wrote that I-thou is not a means to an object or a goal, but a definitive relationship involving the whole being. For him, our relationship with God was the ultimate I-thou. But it can happen in love as well. Yeah, because love is a subject-to-subject -subject relationship. There is no object in it. And for Booba, you could relate to a tree or a landscape in an I-thou way, seeing it for what it really is and not as a construct in your own mind. And I find that really interesting because I've always felt like I have flashes of that since I was a child. And it's something I, I pursue it's why I write. It's why I walk every day. For those brief, fleeting moments when things around me change. And they're really powerful. Gerald Manley Hopkins, whose poem, um, Pied Beauty, Liz Berry read for us so beautifully. He talked about inscape and in-stress, which I'd love to know how they might relate to Martin Buber. Inscape for Hopkins was the essential nature of something, and in-stress was the, the process by which we, we saw it. Hopkins was influenced by Duns Scotus, and Duns Scotus um, had the concept of hesitas, thisness, the thisness of something. My guest this week is Stephen Moss. Stephen is a naturalist and author based in Somerset. Stephen is a proper ornithologist, which I'm not. And he's such an inspiring writer. His book, Wild Hares and Hummingbirds, is about the wildlife around his village. And it meant a lot to me when I first read it. Stephen's been writing a series of biographies of birds. And after the robin and the wren, now comes the swallow, a biography, which comes out in October. Where do our swallows go for the winter? Africa, did you say? 
Well, you're half right. Once they leave us, in a few weeks' time, they'll fly the 6,000 miles or so to South Africa. But when they get there, it won't be the start of winter, but summer. Winter isn't something swallows ever need to worry about. Back in January, for the first time in more than 50 years as a birder, I followed our swallows on their epic journey south. At their roost site, just a stone's throw from Durban's International Airport, I watched well over a million swallows silhouetted against an African sunset before they plummeted down into the reeds to roost. It really was one of the greatest wildlife experiences I've ever witnessed. When I flew back home, I thought of those same swallows and the far tougher journey they'd soon have to make, under their own steam. Three months later, in the first week of April, the first swallow of spring flew over my home, on the edge of the Somerset levels. Like you and millions of other people all the way across the Northern Hemisphere, I was overjoyed to see them back, twittering over my garden as if they'd never been away. But the Britain they returned to was very different from when they last left us. We were, in Shakespeare's words, cabined, cribbed, confined and bound in to the area immediately around our home. For me, that meant my garden and a three-mile circuit around rough grass fields crisscrossed by narrow waterways just behind our home. This was where we walked the dog and took our daily exercise and where, over the next few months, I rediscovered the joys of birding on my doorstep. That first swallow opened the floodgates to the rest of the new arrivals. Over the next few weeks, house martins and swifts, cuckoos, wheat ears and warblers galore either dropped in and moved on or stayed put to breed. The hedgerows and skies were filled with birdsong, which lifted all our spirits during those strange and troubled times. And now, as summer slides slowly into autumn, the swallows are about to leave us once again. Every day as they twitter to one another in the sky above me, I wonder if they'll be the last I see this year. When they do finally head off, they'll take with them our hopes and fears. Hope that they'll survive that long journey south, but also the fear that they might be killed by a predator or swept off course by a sudden storm. But if they do make it, then hopefully they'll return next spring to show, as the poet Ted Hughes wrote of another long-distance traveller, the Swift, that the globe's still working. Whether it will be or not, only time will tell. This hedgerow I'm walking past is laden with rose hips and the ivy's coming into flower as well. And it's such a good year for hedgerow fruit. I've been seeing just so many slows. Lovely dark blue with the bloom on them. And haws, which are hawthorn berries. Elderberries, blackberries. Oh, here's some slows, quite small ones here. But there's another, there's a bush not far away that's, that's just groaning with them. And there are crab apples and bittersweet, 
which uh, are bright red berries, and they coil with long strands, long garlands. And if these aren't um, cut by the farmer, they'll provide an amazing food source for wildlife over winter, particularly overwintering birds like red wings and field fares, blackbirds, and for small rodents too. And a good winter for small rodents means a good winter for birds of prey and including things like barn owls and everything else that relies on them. So I really hope these are left. I suspect it's a good year because we had a long warm spring without um, torrential rain or driving winds to disturb the blossom. So loads of things have been able to set fruit. I've been writing a nature notebook in the Times since 2014. And in November, my columns will be collected together and published by Faber as the stubborn light of things. Here's my entry for September 2019. It was the sound that reached me first, although I didn't immediately register what it was. I was taking Scout for her third walk of the day, and as we left the village behind, a series of high, overlapping whistles blew towards me on the breeze. When we reached a gap in the hedge bordering the lane, I peered through and saw them. A dozen lapwings wheeling and dancing over a recently ploughed field. August marks the end of the breeding season when our remaining lapwings leave the uplands and begin to flock on pasture, farmland and the shores of estuaries. They'll also be joined by some birds from the continent who will overwinter with them here. Also known as green plovers and peewits for their signature call, these beautiful waders have a jaunty crest, broad spade-shaped wings and appear black and white in flight although their backs are actually a rich, iridescent green. When I was a child, huge flocks were common. I remember seeing them flashing and turning above us black and white as we drove across the Somerset levels on the way back from Devon at the end of our summer holidays. But like so much of the wildlife we took for granted as children, lapwings have suffered steep declines, down by 80% in England and Wales since 1960, and are now red-listed so that seeing 12 of them together is noteworthy in a way it really shouldn't be. Yet the flocks I remember from my childhood were a shadow of the abundance there once would have been. It's hard for us, with our short lifetimes, to fully experience the losses taking place around us. Declines can also seem normal or somehow inevitable. Certainly, I grew up with the sense that there being less of everything than once upon a time was just the way it was. Changes in agricultural practices, including the loss of rough grazing, more cultivation of marginal land, a switch to autumn-sown crops and increased use of pesticides, are driving many farmland birds from our fields and skies. Curlews and turtle doves, corn buntings, tree sparrows and yellowhammers among them. But this trend is rarely the fault of individual farmers. It's about the economic systems we all participate in and our collective silence when it comes to asking and paying for change. And that's a hare 
running at top speed across the field. God, they're fast. And it's gone. <laughs> wow, you know, until you've seen one, people think that rabbits and hares look the same. If there's any doubt in your mind, it's a rabbit, because a hare is an extraordinary proposition. They are just bigger and leggier and faster than, than you would imagine. They are extraordinary. What a fantastic sight. He or she will go and lie up now somewhere for the day in a ditch or in a tangled field margin somewhere and come out again tonight at dusk. This week's poem is Fox Miles by Helen Mort from her collection Division Street. Helen is a multiple award-winning poet based in Sheffield and she's also a trail runner and climber. As well as that, she's a novelist and her novel Black Car Burning is out now, published by Vintage. Supple as a dream I can't call back A vixen in the hedgerow's matted black Is startled out to skirt the dawn And vanish with the dark Her flame-bright tail extinguished By the railings of the park But first she bolts across an empty road And keeps her pace with mine I slow to look at her across the gap We run in time She turns her face her eyes flare in the artificial light and then she finds a trap door in the night, a corridor towards the sun that she slinks down alone and covers miles she might mistake for home. And what she sees, she cannot tell. But what she knows of distances and doesn't say, I know as well. And with that lilting, silvery, hesitant robin song, the day begins. What's coming to an end, though, is this podcast, and the final episode will be on October the 5th. Peter and I have enjoyed making it so much, and we're still enjoying making it. It's got us through lockdown. And we really hope it's done the same for you. We are planning to make something else together very soon. So watch this space. For now though, see you next week. <laughs>